We are going to look at two chapters now in Esther, chapters 5 and 6. By the way, you may, I don't know if it's been evident, but the... um, the, what's on there is sometimes different than what I'm reading. That's the old NIV. This is the new NIV. You can't update that for some reason. But it shouldn't be major differences, just some minor differences here and there. But that's in case you were wondering. Uh, we're going to look at two chapters, chapter 5 and most of chapter 6, not quite all of chapter 6. So let's prepare ourselves for the reading of God's word. Esther chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day happy and on high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added, I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet to enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. That night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found, recorded there, that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officials, who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. 
When Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? And Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on his head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them, let them robe the man the, the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on a horse uh, through the street, city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned home to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. This is the word of God. Last week, our uh, story ended on a little bit of a sort of a cliffhanger, and, uh, you know, uh, which, in which we saw Esther... Uh, resolve, resolve to go before the king. Uh, we saw her determined resolution to approach the king uninvited, though it may be a death sentence for her, and appeal to the king on behalf of her people, which she may not even uh, be successful in, even if she survives the approach. Remember, she had called a three-day fast for her, ending with her famous words, If I perish, I perish. And during that time of that three days, she doesn't talk herself out of it. She doesn't find a reason to delay further. And in that situation, it's not hard to imagine any reason to delay uh, seeming like a good reason. Uh, but she doesn't hesitate. Uh, she doesn't give herself time or room to, to she, you know, she's already thought about it. She's already uh, determined to do it. And she just sticks to that course of action. Um, you know, the time to think about it is done. The time to resolve, uh, to, to act in the face of fear and danger and uncertainty is here. And it, isn't that the way it is sometimes, right? Uh, actions of courage and boldness are easy to feel resolved in until the moment, up until the moment they're required of us, right? And then they're easy to talk ourselves out of. Any reason to delay or hesitate or put it off or change course seems like a good one. But Esther remains resolved. She doesn't talk herself out of it. She doesn't uh, keep putting it off, but she remains resolved. And the king, who, remember, uh, this is a very dramatic and suspenseful uh, event when she walks into his presence. The king holds the power of life and death. Right? And uh, when someone approached the king, you know, he's seated in his throne holding his golden scepter, and right behind him is a large soldier with a big axe, and uh, you really hope for the scepter, right? Not the axe. And the king, uh, you know, we talked about all that last time, the king, who, uh, you know, we don't expect, uh, in, at this point in the story, we, we don't necessarily um, 
you know, think of him as a merciful, compassionate guy. And so you could imagine the fear and trepidation that Esther might feel. Imagine the the pounding in her chest, right? Uh, The very real possibility, the very real likelihood that this could be the last thing she does in her life on this earth. Uh, But there is, you know, a little ray of hope that Esther has found favor with King Xerxes before, right? And so maybe, maybe she will again. And uh, in this great uh, moment of suspense, uh, uh, you know, she does. That's what happens. She finds favor from the king. He holds out the gold scepter to her to welcome and accept her into his presence, and her life is then spared. Very lucky for Esther, right? Very lucky. But of course, we know that the reader knows that luck has nothing to do with it. And, you know, many things in the story to, uh, to this point have uh, happened to work out in, in such a way for the Jewish people's deliverance that has nothing to do with their strength or strategizing. And uh, much of it is, you know, from a human perspective, just appears to be r- really, really good luck, <laughs> Right? And one, one writer sums it up this way, that, uh, you know, the, the, the decision you're sort of forced to, confronted to, to think about is either the Jewish people in Esther have just extraordinary good luck, or unseen powers are at work giving events a particular shape and direction. And what may appear to be luck from a human perspective, from the perspective of faith, is again God granting Esther this favor that she receives and God giving her this favor and guiding her path to bring it to his, uh, his conclusion. And God who, God, who holds the king's heart in his hands, and God, whose power uh, is, is uh, greater than King Xerxes' power. And, you know, in our, in our chapters today, there's a few proverbs that come to mind that I'm going to uh, mention as we go. One of those is this. In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels towards all who please him. Uh, In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels towards all who please him. The heart is the seat of the will, sort of the decision-making of the king. And the Lord's hand in that proverb is his power. And this picture of channeling the stream is like a picture of a farmer who's digging irrigation ditches to where he knows their most needful and beneficial for his purposes. And so the, king, the, the, the point of this proverb is then that the king is sovereign, excuse me, the Lord is sovereign over the decisions even of kings, even of the most powerful upon this earth. God's hand is over that. And God directs even their decisions according to his mysterious providence and sovereign will to where he knows they are most needful and beneficial for his purposes. And the proverb really is the the reality 
of what we see here in Esther chapter 5, that God is sovereign even over even this great and uh, ex- extensive and fearful and seemingly absolute power of this earthly king. God is greater still. And God, and though we can't always, uh, you know, see how or understand why, God uses his power, not like the king, not arbitrarily, not for self-serving ends, but he uses his power for his glory and for the good of those who love him. And what rules the universe then is not ultimately the will of kings, the power of kings, but the will of the king of kings, the power of the king of kings who holds it all in his hands. And that's step one then. So uh, Esther has been granted favor by the king, which we know by faith to be God's hand, giving it to her and turning the king's heart favorably towards her. But step two, getting her uh, actual request granted and persuading the king to uh, do something about this edict of destruction that Haman has, uh, you know, uh, persuaded the king to enact, that's a whole other thing, and that's still unresolved. And, you know, we sort of, uh, in this suspenseful moment of uh, Esther coming before the king, we sort of expect that resolution to come, but we see it it gets kind of delayed. And the king uh, responds with a a statement of generosity to her. He says, uh, you know, up to half his kingdom, and uh, he'll grant it to her. And that's a sort of a typical uh, royal statement that wouldn't be uh, understood literally, uh, but even still, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's expressing generous disposition, but it's not a guarantee that anything she asks is already secured. Um, after all, the king might judge a request that she brings to be more than half his kingdom's worth <laughs> and deny it. And so we're still left uh, with uh, that that uh, the whole purpose of Esther coming to the king unresolved. She hasn't been killed, but she still uh, hasn't, we don't know yet that her request will be granted. And at this point in the story then, the, the, rather than proceeding to resolve that, the, the, narr- the, the story goes on a little bit of a, a side plot to uh, the uh, further conflict between Haman and Mordecai. And, uh, you know, so interestingly enough, Esther doesn't make her request right away. Um, she invites the king, not only the king, but Haman also, to not only one, but two banquets. And, uh, you know, first, you know, discussing matters of policy, uh, it would be, would be typically be done in a banquet feasting setting with a Persian king. They, uh, that was sort of the proper protocol. Persian kings, in fact, uh, often made decisions when they were drunk on wine. Uh, it's not clear, so it's, you know, uh, that's why she has the banquet. It's not clear why Esther has two banquets. Um, it, you know, we're not sort of given insight into whatever strategy she's strategizing with having two banquets here. Um, but it is, I think, you know, we should assume it's some kind of strategy. It's not uh, fearful hesitation on her part. 
but it's uh, some sort of strategy. Maybe it's intended to secure further goodwill from the king and move him into a position, further into a position of readiness to grant requests generously. Um, possibly, we don't know for sure. Uh, it's also not clear uh, why she invites Haman. Uh, there's many guesses. Maybe one guess is that its uh, desired effect was perhaps to start to plant uh, seeds of resentment or suspicion in the king's mind about Haman. Something like, you know, why is that third wheel Haman always hanging around? You know, the, this banquet should be just between me, the king, and Esther, the queen. Why is, you know, why is Haman, did I give Haman too much power? Is he starting to intrude himself where he ought not to be? And so it could be that's part of her strategy there. But again, we don't know. Those are, that's only speculation. We're not told why. But these two unexplained things, uh, two banquets and, uh, two, and including Haman in the invitation to the banquets, they, you know, not only add drama and suspense to the story, but more so these two feasts fit into sort of a bigger literary structure of the book of Esther, uh, where the, the, uh, that, that are, are meant to highlight and pinpoint a turning point in the book. And so the beginning, if you remember, in chapter 1, starts with two feasts, two banquets. At the end, we're going to see it ends with two feasts, two banquets. And then right here in the middle, you have Esther's two banquets. And that, what that does is it uh, creates a, what was a common literary structure, chiasm, and uh, what that does is it creates a central focal point. So you have two feasts, banquets in the beginning, two feasts, banquets at the end, two feasts, uh, banquets in the middle, and right in between those middle feasts and banquets, it creates a focal point of the story. It creates a turning point in the story. And it focuses the turning point on the story on, interestingly enough, not on human action, as important as it may be, or uh, but it focuses the turning point of the story on a series of coincidences which bring about, which come together to create the turning point of the story. It focuses the story on a series of coincidences, seemingly random coincidences that all come together in just the right way to begin this series of reversals and table turning that we'll see in the in the book of Esther and so uh, we'll skip over the remainder of chapter five for now but the result is uh, that um, Mordecai now his life becomes uh, seemingly in mortal danger of more of Haman's uh, evil plotting uh, mortal danger before Esther's plan would have time to be carried out he's resolved to impale Haman on a stake to get the permission of the king to do that uh, you know, since it hasn't been too hard to, for Haman to convince the king to uh, annihilate people, a whole nation already, it doesn't seem like it would then be too hard for Haman to get the king's permission to kill one person. Uh, so Mordecai seems to be in mortal danger, at, but 
what happens right between Esther's first banquet and second banquet is we see a series of uh, at least five coincidences that come together to work for Mordecai's deliverance and create this real turning point in the story. First, the king, in chapter 6, verse 1, the king just happens to, on this particular night of any night, just happens to have a night of unrest. He can't sleep. And so, too, uh, of anything he could do to fill that void of sleeplessness, he happens to ask for some bedtime reading. Three, of any book he could request, he just happens to request the royal records be read. And for of any portion of those royal records that could be read, it just so happens that the portion that is read to him is the portion that contains the account of Mordecai saving the king's life. And the king then asks about this and learns that no recognition was given to Mordecai for his act of service to the king. That's like an oversight on the king's part. If you remember, kings were known for responding with, with uh, great uh, generosity to those who uh, did them favors like this. And this was a serious favor that Mordecai had done. He had saved the king's life. But nothing had been done to show him re- uh, uh, gratitude and, and uh, honor for recognition for that. And then, probably the, the greatest, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the fifth coincidence here, the person that happens to come to the king, just as the king has resolved to correct this oversight, the first person who comes to the king just happens to be Haman. And of course, this coincidence then is coupled with irony, right? As Haman comes to the king in his great pride to humiliate Mordecai, uh, the tables get turned on him, and the result is Haman is deeply humiliated. And everything from this point on, uh, with these series of coincidences, you know, previously everything seemed to be coming up Haman, But now everything works towards his demise and defeat. And all of that pivots on these uh, small things that seemingly are random coincidences that just happen to come together in such a particular and significant way. And of course, just the reader, just as we know, Esther's luck wasn't mere luck. Neither is this coincidence mere coincidence, right? And Proverbs 16.33 reminds us that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord, that even something as random as rolling the dice, even God is sovereign over that to use it for his purposes, We might view rolling the dice as random, uh, resulting in coincidental outcomes. They uh, probably viewed casting lots as maybe controlled by fate, resulting in arbitrary outcomes. But either way, we know that what rules the universe is not ultimately chance, is not ultimately fate. It's not random and it's not blind, but it is the sovereign will of our God in heaven, who brings together even the seemingly small and seemingly insignificant events of this life to accomplish his will. 
Now, you know, I I just want to say we shouldn't understand any of this to mean that every bit of luck is necessarily interpreted as God's favor upon somebody or every coincidence will necessarily work out in a, a, from a human perspective, a, a favorable way. And the Bible, in fact, recognizes that uh, in many places, even in, you know, Psalm 73 comes to mind where we in life often have to wrestle with the reality that sometimes it appears that all the luck and favor in life works out for those who despise God, while those who honor him feel like they get the short end of the stick often. But that psalmist, in wrestling with that, comes to a resolution when he sees the end of the story, when he gives a broader perspective of faith and the more long-term perspective of God's purposes in this life. And so what we know, then, is things that seem to be luck or things that seem to be random or things that seem to be coincidence, even those things are in God's hands. And even when he is most absent, he is present, working, guiding events along his path according to his plan. We don't see the path all the way. We don't always understand it. But by faith, we we know the end of the story. And we know the one who is leading us and leading all things to his good and wise end. And when we believe that, we can respond in trust and we can have peace in this life. The next thing we see here is uh, we see Haman's pride and Haman's fall. Haman is a picture of the the fool from the book of Proverbs. And he's all puffed up, all, uh, you know, and uh, inflated with a sense of his own importance. So much so that he's totally aware, unaware, or unsuspecting of any uh, potential danger that might be coming his way. Instead, he's puffed up and big-headed by this invitation that he alone was included with uh, to the, in this exclusive uh, banquet between King Xerxes and Queen Esther. And his response to this, we see some ugly combination of uh, prideful boasting and prideful self-pitying. We see his boasting in verses 10 and 11. After he leaves uh, from the first banquet, he calls together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, verse 11. uh, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above other nobles and officials. And he continues in verse 12, and that's not all. Haman adds, I'm the only person the Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. Haman is just boasting in, in himself, right? And he is engaged in boastful one-upmanship, right? This is uh, 
Haman's me monster is coming out. There, I was reminded as I was reading this, there was a comedian that, uh, was, you know, had this, it was, you know, clean humor and uh, surprisingly insightful humor into human nature where he warns, beware the me monster. And he asks the question, what is it about the human condition that we need to top everyone else? And you see, it's not just that Haman here is recognizing his blessings in this life. It's not just that he's finding rejoicing in his blessings, uh, you know, but he's boasting in them. And not only that, you see this key phrase here, uh, he's boasting not just that the king has elevated him and honored him, but that the king had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. You know, he's pointing out and boasting in the fact, yeah, everyone else is here. I'm here. See the difference? I'm up here. He's making sure everyone sees uh, how much higher than other people he is. And, you know, why do we, maybe you can, maybe you have seen or felt that in yourself. Why do we have this instinctive desire or need to outdo other people? Why can't we lift others up instead of put them in their place or put them down? Why can't we rejoice in the good of others instead of competing? Why can't we appreciate the accomplishments and uniqueness of others instead of outdo them and need to prove to ourselves and others how insignificant others are in comparison with ourselves. Well, maybe here's a couple reasons. Insecurity and pride. Some paradoxical combination of feeling insecure and needing to prove ourselves and at the same time believing that I'm better and more deserving and more important than the people around me and that my worth comes from a favorable comparison to others around me. We see boasting in Haman, and we also see self-pitying in Haman. His poor, poor Haman. Vast wealth, many sons, professional success, promotions, respect, but all of that, he says, gives me no satisfaction. Wow, how, you know, how'd you like to hear that if you were one of Haman's many sons that he's just boasted in? You know, many sons, but that, that gives me no satisfaction. As so long as he sees Mordecai sitting at the king's gate, none of that gives him any joy because of his resentment and hatred towards this one person. Out of all the people who are bowing down to him, there's one person that isn't, and he can't get over it, can't get past it. He can't stop fuming about this one person who won't show deference to him. He's letting this one person uh, and his focus on this one person rob away, eat away at any joy he could otherwise find in the many blessings of his life. And Mordecai, his enemy, and the resentment and hatred and bitterness that Haman is holding against Mordecai is eating away. Uh, he's letting it rob him of being able to enjoy and be content 
in life's blessings. Isn't that the way with bitterness and hatred? That it can consume us and it can eat away at our ability to see and enjoy and rejoice in God's blessings in this life. And Satan and this world and our own sinful nature will give us endless things that we can let rob us of our joy and blind us to our blessings. Endless opportunities to let the root of bitterness and resentment and hatred grow in us. And unfortunately, though, Haman doesn't get very uh, good counsel as to how to deal with this uh, rooting up, brewing up resentment and hatred in him. Uh, He gets something that's a little more appealing towards and consistent with and fueling of that hatred and resentment. Uh, Haman's lovely wife, Zeresh, and all his friends say, oh yeah, well, just have a pole set up and impale Haman on it. Uh, Then you can go and enjoy yourself and, uh, you know, enjoy yourself at the banquet after sacrificing someone's life in a grotesque way to your vain pride. And this suggestion, we see the suggestion of executing Haman and impaling him. This uh, delights Haman, and he has the pole set up. And the reason it's, you know, this is a, a pole 75 feet high or a platform with a pole on top of it. Um, you know, the, the reason for its height uh, practically is, is, is a, 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 a way of humiliation, you know, to display Mordecai's dead body for, for all to see. But probably the, the narrator wants us to also uh, think, you know, that this, the height of this pole uh, is, a, is a, in good competition with the height of Haman's pride, right? But we'll see that all that, uh, all that Haman seeks for Mordecai, he receives himself. All that uh, and all the honor he seeks for himself Mordecai receives, and actually Haman has to be the one to heap it on him. And Haman, who's got a lot of pride, is about to have a big fall. He's a perfect example of Proverbs sixteen eighteen: Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And this brings us back to the king's sleepless night. Haman, too, had a sleepless night, working away, eagerly building this, uh, this uh, pole uh, to impale Mordecai on. And you can just sort of picture, you know, imagine, you know, uh, after he's done, he's sort of whistling and skipping off to the king's court to uh, make this request to carry uh, out this execution. But this, uh, again, coincidentally dovetails with the very moment the king has resolved to correct his oversight and honor Mordecai. And so it's kind of comedic that, uh, you know, they're not saying who they're talking about and thinking about different people here, that uh, the king is thinking, oh, good, you know, Haman's here. He can give me a good idea on how to honor Mordecai. But he doesn't name Mordecai, and he simply asks, what should the king... the Uh, be done for the man the king delights to honor. And when Haman hears this, of course, Haman interprets it as, well, who else would the king be talking about but me? 
And so he comes up with this over-the-top heaping of honor. In fact, wearing the king's robes and riding the king's horses, it seems like he's almost seeking more than just honor, but wanting to be seen uh, on the level of king himself. But the tables get turned, right? And just what's going to happen with the edict of destruction where those who would be, uh, were to be destroyed are victorious. Here the one who seeks to be honored is humiliated. The tables are turned and Haman, who sought to honor himself, is humiliated as being the, the one who has to heap all that over-the-top honor that he wanted for himself onto not just someone else, but the very last person in all the world that he would want to give honor to, his enemy, Mordecai. Jesus himself warned us, warned us against that sinful impulse in us that is self-seeking and self-promoting and self-exalting that wants to do, outdo everyone else and be on top and put ourselves first and lift ourselves up. All those who exalt themselves will be humbled, Jesus says, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And that, that is what the gospel ought to do in us. It ought to enable us to humble ourselves because we know that we are accepted by God. Right, Because Xerxes, back to the beginning of chapter 5, it's not really Xerxes who has and holds the power over life and death. He thinks he does. Xerxes does not really hold the power over life and death. Jesus holds the power over life and death. And by his death and resurrection, he conquered death. And now he holds out his cross To us and all who come to him in faith, he now has the authority to grant unto all who believe in him eternal life. And those believing in him receive that and receive at the same time the assurance of God's eternal love and acceptance for us. And so we need not approach God with the fear and trepidation in which Esther would have approached Xerxes, when we are in Christ, we can now be confident of a gracious acceptance with God because God accepts us on the basis of Jesus' righteousness. And God's wrath that would have been against our sin has been paid to the full in Jesus' cross and suffering and death. And now we who approach God in Christ, we can do it with all confidence of acceptance, no fear of condemnation or rejection. But we are confident of a gracious acceptance with God. We have been made his children, whom he loves, from whom nothing in all creation will separate us from that love that's ours in Christ Jesus. And that ought to give us confidence And it ought to give us humility. Acceptance with God frees us from the slavish fear of man, from the fear of living in rejection, from the uh, need to prove ourselves, from the need to feel superior, from the need to grasp for self-exaltation. It frees us 
in humility and love to forgive our enemies because God has forgiven us. God has accepted us. God has exalted us to that exalted position of being a son or a daughter of the God of the universe. What more do we need to grasp for ourselves if that is a true reality in our heart and in our soul? Now accepted by God, we can give of ourselves and live in humility. Let's pray that God's spirit would work these truths into our minds and our hearts, would make us confident in Christ and in his work and in our identity as children of God, that God by his spirit would make us humble as our Lord himself lived a life of humility. Let's pray. Our God, we do pray that you would give us, grant unto us the spirit of Christ, the spirit of humility. We pray that you would lead us into living a life of humility because we know that we are accepted by you and give us all that confidence we need in this life of your favor and grace and love upon us and give us that faith we need uh, in the difficult times of life and the uncertain times of life when we don't see how it's all uh, gonna work out. Give us that trust that you hold this world in your sovereign and powerful and loving hands and work all things for the good of those who love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.